Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Welcome. Please stand. We'll begin in prayer. This is from the Roman canon of the Missal of Pius V. Nobis quoque peccatoribus famulis tuis de multitudine miserationum tuarum sperantibus partem aliquam et societatem donari dineris, cum tuis sanctis apostolis et martiribus, cum Ioanne, Stefano, Mattia, Barnabam, Ignazio, Alexandro, Marcellino, Petro, Felicitate, Perpetua, Agatha, Lucia, Agnete, Cecilia, Anastasia, et omnibus sanctis tuis, intercorum nos consortium, non estimater meritis et venie, quesumus, largitor admite per Christum Dominum nostrum. Translation. To us sinners also, your servants, trusting in the greatness of your mercy, deign to grant some part in fellowship with your holy apostles and martyrs, with John, Stephen, Matthias, Barnabas, Ignatius, Alexander, Marcellinus, Peter, Felicitas, Perpetua, Agatha, Lucy, Agnes, Cecilia, Anastasia, and all your saints, unto whose company we implore you to admit us, not weighing our merits, but freely granting us pardon through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Father Joseph. I want to first of all commend you all for coming out on such a balmy Virginia evening. I think we should have had a talk the three U's of the holy fire or something like that to warm us. Does anybody, everybody have the handout? Uh, what you're not allowed to do is read it while I'm talking. Alright, so put it away from now and we're going to get to it. I'm a little under the weather by the way. I woke up with a horrible sore throat this morning, but thank God it is... Um, hopefully passing, but you can hear my voice is a little on the scratchy side, so please bear with me as we go forward. Uh, over the next two weeks, we are blessed, I believe, to be able to participate, to enter into the life of the early church, the earliest days when Christians were being hauled out of their hiding places, out of their homes, being burned alive, filleted, fed to lions, and so forth. It is an opportunity, a unique opportunity, I believe, because sadly today we don't spend a lot of time in study. It's just kind of part of our culture. And so not a lot of opportunity to dive into these works which are the patrimony of the church. It is part of our family story. We're here in this hall a few months back, and we went through salvation history. Some of you were with me. How many of you were part of that series with me? And we went all the way from Adam to Jesus Christ, but the story does not leave off at Jesus Christ. It is a big mistake to close our Bibles and to pretend as though the working of God and His speaking through people has stopped. It has not 
In fact, the early church is a witness to the fact that the Holy Spirit was only beginning at the close of the last book written in the sacred scriptures. As we finish the book of Revelation and close our Bible, the story of salvation is truly only just beginning. As we know many of the people from the sacred scriptures by name, we do know many of the saints also by name, but sadly we don't know their story. And so we are not able to really be nourished by their life. And so I hope over the next two weeks we'll have an opportunity to be nourished. We're going to approach the next two weeks a little bit differently than we usually do at the Institute. I don't want to stand up here and simply tell you about what happened. I want you to have an opportunity to experience these texts and read them yourselves. The text we'll be looking at tonight, and please don't read it right now. It was a text is unique in early Christian writing because it is written as a memoir, as part of the diary of a woman who was being taken to martyrdom. And she was writing the text in her diary. And it has survived now. It was written probably in the year 203. And it comes down to us as a great gift and an insight into what these men and women were thinking and what the early church saw as their place within the created order. I want you to know that these texts are available to you. They are yours just as much as they are mine. They are ours. They are our stories, and we should be familiar with them and have them ready at hand so that we can be nourished by them. And so my goal over the next two weeks is simply to do that, to place in your hands the stories which can nourish us through the struggles that lay ahead in our life. Okay. So I will be giving a short introduction this evening, even shorter next week. We will then turn to a reading of the text that we have this evening We will then take a break, and again, we will do our Q&A a little bit differently than we normally do at the Institute. That question mark that I require on the end will be taken off, and an opportunity for you as we read the text. You might just say, look, I thought this was interesting, or I wonder why Perpetua says this, and an opportunity not for me simply to feel the question, but if somebody else wants to respond to that, we'll have an opportunity to do that also. And I hope to uh, have enough time for that. Who are the holy women of the Roman canon? First of all, there are seven women. Father Joseph read their names just a moment ago. All of them lived before the Council of Nicaea in 325. I point this out because all of them, all seven, are a witness to the earliest tradition of the church. They are a witness actually to the apostolic age. Because these women were present at the time when the disciples of the apostles were teaching. And so through their teachers, they literally touch upon the apostolic age in Christ himself. All of them, all seven, met a violent death of martyrdom. They were either Romans or just popular saints in the city of Rome. Why are we interested in them? First and foremost, because they are martyrs. They are martyrs. And I don't simply mean they spilled their blood. On Tuesday with Father Scully, and he talked about St. Thomas Aquinas saying that God prefers to work through mediation, through secondary causes. And St. Thomas, of course, is basing himself on the fathers and ultimately on sacred scripture. St. Paul says we are his hands and his feet. Yes, God could have done it without us, 
but he loves us too much. He literally wants to share his life with us, to make us do what only he does. And so he allows us to be the ones who point the way for others. The martyrs point the way to Jesus Christ. And so unfortunately, when we don't know their stories, they are not able to point. And yes, we need their witness. We cannot do it on our own because God designed us to live in a communion with each other, to be led to Christ by our neighbor. And so the martyrs point the way to Jesus Christ. Secondly, turn to Matthew chapter 13, verse 31. Another parable he put before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is the greatest of shrubs, and it becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make their nest in its branches. Huh? In another place, he says, The kings and queens of the earth come to rest underneath. Why do we read about these holy women and the martyrs in general? Because they are a witness again to that growth of the kingdom of God. To see for ourselves as that seed was planted by Christ in the apostles and that seed burst forth upon society and grew into a great oak tree in which the birds of the air come and nest, and we all gather underneath in the shade of its leaves. When we read these early saints, we see that church grow. We see the oak tree grow. Which leads me to my third point. Why do we read the lives of these holy women? For me, it is because when I was away from the church for a number of years, and I began to investigate once again the Christianity that my father had given to me. It was to their stories that I turned. In fact, this beautiful book, Treasury of Early Christianity, was given to me by my father in those days when I was away from the church. And I pulled it off my shelf and I began to read and I could not put it down. Because when I asked myself the question, as I yearned for something more in my life, I knew I needed to come back to church, but to which church? I began to read the lives of the early martyrs. And within a few days of reading, there was absolutely no question in my mind that the early church was indeed Catholic to a man. And for scholars reading these early years, there can be, I believe, no doubt of that. It is here in the earliest days of the church, which I would call the battleground of apologetics. Huh? Many will claim that the church fell away from the faith. Many Protestants will claim that the church fell away from the faith by the year around 325 with the Council of Nicaea, with the crowning of St. Constantine the Great, the first Christian emperor, that secularism or the society, the corruption of paganism, somehow infiltrated the church and corrupted her. But those people, I believe, must face the writings which come before 325. We do not close our Bibles and people simply stop writing. We have a witness, as we will see tonight in the story of Perpetua and Felicity. 
that tells us certain things about what the early church believed. Even the Jehovah's Witnesses will grant that the early church was Catholic. Very few would ever deny that the early church was Catholic. But they will claim that the weeds started to grow up so early in the church and choked out the life of the Holy Spirit so that the Catholic church, in a sense, died. We saw before in our series on Polycarp and Ignatius, as we read the writings of St. John the Beloved, and how he was defending the faith against Gnosticism, and how that same defense was carried over into the work of Ignatius, who was martyred around 111, and into his work of his student Polycarp, who I'll read a little bit about in a minute. We see a chain, a link from Christ to the early apostles in the earliest days of the church, and here drawing past the martyrdom of Polycarp to the martyrdom of St. Cecilia, and perpetuum felicity this evening, to see whether indeed the weed did choke out that great tree which Christ promised. Certainly, our Lord warned that weeds would grow up. You can see that if you still have your Bibles open. If you don't, you can just wait. In verse 24 of chapter 13 in Matthew, we have it right there. Verse 24, another parable he put before them. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. Huh? But remember that our Lord also promised in the gospel of Matthew chapter 28 that he would remain with us always. And in the gospel of John chapter 14, that he would send the Holy Spirit to lead us into all truth. And in Matthew chapter 16, that the gates of hell would not prevail against the church. Anyone who wants to claim that the church's teaching on the Eucharist, on intercessory prayer, on prayer for the dead, or it's the church's hierarchical structure, or late medieval inventions, must come face to face with the teachings of the early fathers and mothers who held the faith close, who spilled their blood for the faith. However, we do not read them simply for apologetics. We also read them, as I said before, for their example. They faced a struggle which many of us, God willing, will never face. And they persevered. For us, during Lent at the Institute, we often turn back to the time of the early church and to the, these icons of holiness. We'll be looking also in a few weeks at the epistles of St. Clement, which were held in great honor in the church. These were the early martyrs who struggled for the faith. And we too also, here during the great fast, we struggle. Off in the distance, we see the glimmering light of paradise the glimmering light of Easter, of the resurrection of the Lord. But between here and there, there remains a great struggle. And we will struggle. And the devil will try to bring us down. But we have these great women as our example. The struggle was placed before them a difficult way. And yet, with the grace of God, they persevered, and we also will persevere if we stay faithful to Christ. 
These women are bound together as a group in what is known as the Roman Canon. It is today called the First Eucharistic Prayer. This canon or rule of faith, albeit with minor changes, dates to the earliest days of the church. It is most likely one of the most ancient Eucharistic prayers still in use today. Father Boyer states that the Roman canon, such as it is today, goes back to St. Gregory the Great. Gregory the Great died around 601 or 602. It's very common among liturgists and theologians when they don't know an answer to liturgy about something that dates so far back that they can't quite identify where it came from. They give it to Gregory the Great because he's the great liturgist of the West. Okay, And he was a great liturgist. So some will say that Gregory, looking at the canon, realized that there were no women in the list besides the mother of God, and so placed these women in the canon. I doubt it. I doubt it. We have Augustine writing some 150 years prior who states that the stories of Perpetua and Felicity, at least, were already, these women were already held in great honor and they had their own feast day. So it is quite possible that the list of seven women predates, or at least partially predates, Gregory the Great. Father Fortescue states that the Roman Mass, and, and in particular the canon, is the oldest part, goes back without essential change to the age when it first developed out of the oldest liturgy of all. It is still redolent of that liturgy of the days when Caesar ruled the world and thought that he could stamp out the faith of Christ, when our fathers met before dawn and sang a hymn to Christ as to a God. It is in those days, as Father Fortescue put it, when Caesar ruled the world and thought he could stamp out the faith of Christ, to which we are blessed to turn over the next couple of weeks. In those days when our fathers met before dawn and sang a hymn to Christ as to a God. Here, Father Fortescue is not simply waxing eloquent of days gone by, but is quoting one of the earliest recognitions of Christianity by the Roman Empire. I'll read you a letter written by Pliny the Younger, who was appointed by the Emperor Trajan to the Northern Asia Minor area around 111. So very early, this is only about... Ten years after the death of St. John. And Pliny writes, It is my custom, Lord, to refer to you all questions about which I have doubts. In the examination of Christians, I have never taken part, and therefore I do not know what crime is usually punished or investigated or to what extent. So I have no little uncertainty whether there is any distinction of age or whether the weaker offenders fare in no respect otherwise than the stronger, whether pardon is granted on repentance, or whether, when one has been a Christian, there is no gain to him in that he has ceased to be such, whether the mere name, if it is without crimes or crimes connected with the name, are punished. Meanwhile, I have taken this course. With those who are accused before me as Christians, I have asked whether they are Christians. Those who confessed, I asked a second and a third time, threatening punishment. Those who persisted, I ordered, led away to execution in the year 111. Persecution was nothing new to the Christians of Asia Minor. 
St. John the Beloved had been arrested, taken to Rome, and boiled alive in oil. He lived. And the emperor feared what had taken place and exiled him to Patmos. His disciple, St. Ignatius, was arrested, taken to Rome, and fed to the lions. The great St. Polycarp, the 86-year-old bishop of Smyrna, was a disciple of St. Ignatius. He was burned alive. And then, when the fire did not kill him, he was put to the sword during the reign of Marcus Aurelius around 166 or 167. It is said that shortly before Polycarp's arrest and martyrdom, he traveled to Rome during his reign as Bishop of Smyrna. St. Irenaeus, his student, says this, He it was who, coming to Rome in the time of Pope Anicetus, caused many to turn away from the heretics to the church of God. So he went, Polycarp went, to Rome and preached, proclaiming that he had received this one and sole truth from the apostles, that namely which is handed down by the church. In a letter written by Pope Victor, Irenaeus reveals more about Polycarp's visit. Apparently at the time, there were two different practices for the dating of the celebration of Pascha or Easter. In Rome, the Sunday closest to the 14th of the Hebrew month of Nisan was chosen. The 14th of Nisan of the Jews is Passover. And so the Sunday closest was chosen for the celebration of Easter. But in Asia Minor, that was not the case. They were celebrating Easter on the 14th of Nisan, no matter what day of the week it fell on. Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, it didn't matter. Okay, Polycarp went to Rome and met with Pope Antecedus and entered into a debate on the subject. St. Irenaeus recounts the story. He says that when Polycarp, when blessed Polycarp was at Rome in the time of Anicetus, and they disagreed a little about these things, they immediately made peace with one another, not caring to quarrel over this matter. For neither could Anicetus persuade Polycarp, nor Polycarp persuade Pope Anicetus. But though matters were in the shape, they communed together, and Anicetus conceded the celebration of the Eucharist in the church to blessed Polycarp manifestly as a mark of respect, and they parted from each other in peace. On a little side note, on authentic ecumenism, I think that our relationship, especially as Catholics with the Orthodox, to take this image, here a bishop comes to Rome, he debates the Pope. Huh? They have two different practices, but both practices are apostolic and honorable. They respect each other. Huh? There is distinction, but not division. And they commune together even though there was disagreement. Okay? And I think we could learn a lot from that in our work with our brothers and sisters of the Orthodox churches. Soon after Polycarp's return to Smyrna, he was arrested, probably during the reign of the persecution of Marcus Aurelius, and when commanded to deny Christ, which we will again confront in the martyrdom of Perpetuan Felicity, Polycarp uttered the timeless words, Eighty and six years I have served him. How then can I blaspheme my King and my Savior? Bring forth what thou wilt. 
Why do I bring these points up about blessed Polycarp? Because it is in Rome that Irenaeus states, He it was who coming to Rome caused many to turn away from the heretics to the church of God. Among the group of people that would have been present or may have been present at the time of Polycarp's visit would have been a young girl of no more than 10 years old, St. Cecilia, listed in the Roman canon. Her parents were nobles. They were also pagans. If Cecilia did not hear Polycarp himself preach, there can be no doubt that those who did, some of them, would have also witnessed the martyrdom of St. Cecilia. As I said, she's a young girl of noble birth. She was a Sicilian, but her family lived in Rome. She was touched at an early age by the gift of the Holy Spirit, and though her parents remained pagan, she accepted Christ as a young girl and vowed her virginity. Her parents, not knowing of her conversion or her vow, betrothed her to a young man of noble birth, Valerian. On the day of their wedding, when the guests had left, Valerian entered the bridal chamber, and Cecilia stopped him and warned him not to touch her because of her vow, that if he did touch her, that her guardian angel, who was standing at her side at that moment, would strike him dead. He doubted. And he said, show me this angel. If we have time, we'll read the story of the martyrdom next week. Show me this angel. And she said, you cannot see the angel unless you are born again of water and the Spirit, unless you are baptized. He retired and went to the catacombs and found Pope Urban, who was hiding during the persecution. Pope Urban baptized him. He went back home. He saw his beloved bride and standing next to her was an angel covered in fire. He told his brother they both converted to the faith and began spending their nights collecting the relics of the martyrs who had been martyred during the day. They were caught, they were arrested, and they were killed. Cecilia continued their project, collecting the precious bones of the martyrs, and she was also arrested and taken into confinement. During her arrest, the soldiers guarding her were said to be so moved that they converted to Christ. And on the last night before she was martyred, many people came to her, and the tradition tells us that 400 people converted on the night before her martyrdom. She was martyred in the year 177 on November 22nd. From the time of Cecilia's martyrdom in 177, we enter for the most part into a time of peace. Peace, why? Not because of any overt decision on the part of the Roman emperors, but because of incompetence. Usually, the more organized and more uh, powerful the emperor, the greater the persecution because the Christians were seen as a threat to society. But among those emperors that were not well organized, the Christians enjoyed peace. By the year 193, the situation was so bad that it is called the year of the five emperors. 
Dr. Carroll says this, On the last day of the year 192, the Emperor Commodus, unworthy son of Marcus Aurelius, who had become a megalomaniac like Nero, imagining himself to be Hercules, was strangled in his bath. Three months later, his successor was assassinated in Rome by the Praetorian Guard, and so forth. It goes down the list of five men that within a few months had been murdered. Eusebius explains the peace in this way. He says, Through the grace of God, the churches throughout the world enjoyed peace. And the word of salvation was leading every soul from every race of man to the devout worship of the God of the universe. So that now at Rome, many who were distinguished for wealth and family turned with all of their household and relatives unto their salvation. By the beginning of the third century, the church was experiencing phenomenal growth simply because they weren't being killed. Tertullian, who was living at the time of the saint's perpetuum felicity, says that even if we wanted to play the avowed enemies, should we be lacking in numbers or resources? We are but of yesterday, yet we have filled the places you frequent, the cities, the villages, the markets, the camp itself, town councils, the palace, the senate, the forum, all we have left you are your temples. Nearly all the citizens of nearly all your cities are now Christians. But the peace would not last long. The man who rose out of that year of five emperors and the murder of four of them was the emperor Severus. At first, he tolerated the Christians, but he was being attacked militarily. And so he marched around the empire, said as many as four times across the empire, defending its borders. In the year 201, he came through Asia Minor, came down through the Holy Land, through the Middle East, to Egypt, and crossed through Palestine. And he was so moved, I should say horrified, that the Christians had made these gains, as Tertullian explains in North Africa. He didn't know what had happened. He closed his eyes, and the empire had become Christian. In the year 202, Severus unleashed a new persecution, the first organized persecution by an emperor in over a hundred years. Not that others hadn't persecuted, but an organized empire-wide persecution. Not against Christians as they already were, but to stop the tide of people becoming Christian. He said that all catechumens and their catechists were to be arrested. Among those rounded up in North Africa in the city of Carthage were a noblewoman, Perpetua, who was nursing her young baby, and her servant Felicity, who herself was pregnant with child. They were arrested along with their fellow catechumens, Revocatus, Saturninus, and Secundulus, and their beloved catechist, Satyrus. Before we turn to their text, a couple general points of how I would suggest we approach it. First of all, it is one of the greatest works of early Christian literature. Second of all, as I said, it is unique in the sense that it is a, a diary of St. Perpetua. From an apologetic standpoint, it is important to keep in mind that it has never been questioned for its authenticity nor renounced as unorthodox. For those that would like to claim 
that the early church was corrupted, they would have to take the early date in this case of the year 202, merely a hundred years after the death of St. John. And when this text is published among the churches and read as it was in the churches, not one person renounced it as heresy. We would have to claim that in 100 years from the death of St. John, that the entire Christian community had been totally, 100% corrupted. What is its relation to the text of sacred scripture? Please remember that at this time, the canon of scripture, the, the list of the books that were in the Bible was not clearly defined. Johannes Quaston, one of the great patristic scholars, says that it's at St. Augustine's time, 150 years later, the Acts were still held in such esteem that he has to warn his listeners not to put them on the same level as the canonical scriptures, indicating that indeed this was taking place. In fact, if you read his homilies, it is clear that they were reading these Acts in during the Divine Liturgy. Finally, a warning to modern man who is racked with doubt that unless things can be scientifically tested, we will not believe. I give you the words of St. Sophronius in the reading of the life of St. Mary of Egypt, which we have done before. Let no one think, says St. Sophronius, that I have had the audacity to write untruth or to doubt this great marvel. May, ne may I never lie about holy things. If there do happen to be people who after reading this record do not believe it, may the Lord have mercy on them. Because reflecting on the weakness of human nature, they consider impossible these wonderful accomplishments by holy people. With that, let's turn to the text we have in front of us. Now, if you get tired, please stand up and stretch your legs, okay? It's okay as I'm reading this because it's quite long. It's going to take us about 15 to 20 minutes, but you have it in front of you. Again, written in the year 202 or 203. The first paragraph is written by tradition by Tertullian, who was living at the same time. And the ending section is also considered to be written by Tertullian. And in the middle, the story of St. Perpetua and Felicity. The young catechumens, Revocatus and his fellow servants Felicitas, Saturninus, and Secundulus, were apprehended. And among them also was Vivia Perpetua, respectably born, liberally educated, a married matron, having a father and mother and two brothers, one of whom, like herself, was a catechumen, and a son, an infant at the breast. She herself was about 22 years of age. From this point onward, she shall herself narrate the whole course of her martyrdom as she left it described by her own hand and with her own mind. While, she says, we were still with the persecutors, and my father, for the sake of his affection for me, was persisting in seeking to turn me away and to cast me down from the faith. Father, said I, do you see? Let us say this vessel lying here to be a little pitcher or something else. And he says, I see it to be so. And I replied to him, can it be called by any other name than what it is? And he said, no, neither can I call myself anything than what I am, a Christian. Then my father provoked at this saying, threw himself upon me as if he would tear out my eyes. 
but he only distressed me and went away overcome by the devil's arguments. Then in a few days after I had been without my father, I gave thanks to the Lord, and his absence became a source of consolation to me. In that same interval, in a few days, we were baptized. And to me the Spirit prescribed that in the water baptism, nothing else was to be sought for bodily endurance. After a few days, we were taken into the dungeon, and I was very much afraid, because I had never felt such darkness. O oh, terrible day! O oh, the fierce heat! of the shock of the soldiery because of the crowds. I was very unusually distressed by my anxiety for my infant. There were present there Tertius and Pomponius, the blessed deacons, who ministered to us and had arranged by means of a gratuity that we might be refreshed by being sent out for a few hours into the pleasanter part of the prison. Now notice, I'll interrupt on occasion, but notice the Christians are allowed to come and visit them because it was not by the emperor's decree, illegal to be a Christian, but to convert to Christianity. Then going out of the dungeon, all attended to our own wants. I suckled my child, which was now enfeebled by hunger. In my anxiety for it, I addressed, I addressed my mother and comforted my brother and commended to their care my son. I was languishing because I had seen them languishing on my account. Such solicitude I suffered for many days, and I obtained for my infant to remain in the dungeon with me. And forthwith I grew strong and was relieved from distress and anxiety about my infant. And the dungeon became to me as it were a palace, so that I preferred being there to anywhere else. Then my brother said to me, My dear sister, you are already in a position of great dignity and are such that you may ask for a vision, that it may be known to you whether this is to result in a passion or an escape. And I, who knew that I was privileged to converse with the Lord, whose kindness I had found to be so great, boldly promised him and said, Tomorrow I will tell you. And I asked, and this was what was shown to me. Now you might want to mark your papers there. This is her first vision that she receives. I saw a golden ladder of marvelous height reaching up even to heaven and very narrow so that the persons could only ascend it one by one. And on the sides of the ladder were fixed every kind of iron weapon. There were swords, lances, hooks, and daggers, so that if anyone went up carelessly or not looking upwards, he would be torn to pieces and his flesh would cleave to the iron weapons. And under the ladder was crouching a dragon of wonderful size who lay in wait for those who ascended and frightened them from the ascent. And Satyrus went up first, who had subsequently delivered himself up freely on our account, not having been present at the time that we were taken prisoners. This is their catechist, and apparently he was not arrested with the others. When he found out his children in the faith had been arrested, he went to the prison and said, I am their teacher. And he attained to the top of the ladder and turned towards me and said to me, Perpetua, I am waiting for you, but be careful that the dragon does not bite you. And I said, In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, he shall not hurt me. And from under the ladder itself, as if in fear of me, the dragon slowly lifted up its head. And as I trod upon the first step, I trod upon his head. And I went up and I saw an immense extent of garden. And in the midst of the garden, a white-haired man sitting in the dress of a shepherd of a large stature. He was milking sheep. And standing around him were many thousands of white-robed ones. And he raised his head and looked upon me and said to me, Thou art welcome, daughter. And he called me, and from the cheese 
as he was milking, he gave me, as it were, a little cake, and I received it with folded hands, and I ate it, and all who stood around me said, Amen. And at the sound of their voices I was awakened, still tasting a sweetness which I cannot describe, and I immediately related this to my brother, and we understood that it was to be a passion, and we ceased henceforth to have any hope in this world. Another day while we were at dinner, we were suddenly taken away to be heard, and we arrived at the town hall. At once the rumor spread through the neighborhood of the public place, and an immense number of people were gathered together, and we mounted the platform. The rest were interrogated and confessed, and then they came to me, and my father immediately appeared with my boy, and withdrew me from the step and said in a supplicating tone, Have pity on your babe. And Hilarionis the procurator who had just received the power of life and death in the place of the proconsul Minutius Timianus, who was deceased, said, Spare the gray hairs of your father. Spare the infancy of your boy. Offer sacrifice for the well-being of the emperors. Now you remember from the story of Polycarp, the only thing they were asking was to take a pinch of incense, to burn it for the emperor, and to return to their life as a Christian. Polycarp refused to do so. And Perpetua says, And I replied, I will not do so. Hilarionis said, Are you a Christian? And I replied, I am a Christian. And as my father stood there to cast me down from the faith, he ordered by Hilarionis to be thrown down and was beaten with rods. And my father's misfortune grieved me as if I myself had been beaten. I so grieved for his wretched old age. The procurator then delivered judgment on all of us and condemned us to the wild beasts, and we went down cheerfully to the dungeon. Then, because of my child had been used to receive suck from me and to stay with me in prison, I sent Pomponius, the deacon, to my father to ask for the infant, but my father would not give him to me. And even as God willed it, the child no longer desired the breast, nor did my breast cause me unease, lest I should be tormented by the care for my babe and by the pain of my breasts at once. After a few days, while we were all praying, on a sudden, in the middle of our prayer, there came to me a word, and I named Dinocritus. And I was amazed that name had never come into my mind until then. She's praying, and suddenly this name comes into her mind. You'll find out why. And I was grieved as I remembered his misfortune. And I felt myself immediately to be worthy and to be called on to ask on his behalf. And for him I began earnestly to make supplication and to cry with groaning to the Lord. Without delay on that very night, this vision was shown to me. You can mark that. This is our second vision. I saw Dinocritus going out from a gloomy place where also there were several others, and he was parched and very thirsty with a filthy countenance and pallid color and the wound on his face which he had when he died. This Dinocritus had been my brother after the flesh, seven years of age who died miserably with disease, his face being so eaten out with cancer that his death caused repugnance to all men. For him I had made my prayer, And between him and me there was a large interval or chasm, so that neither of us could approach the other. And moreover, in the same place where Dinocritus was, there was a pool 
full of water, having its brink higher than was the stature of the boy. And Dinocritus raised himself up as if to drink. And I was grieved that although the pool held water, still on account of the height of its brink, he could not drink. And I was aroused and knew that my brother was in suffering. For I trusted that my prayer would bring a help to his suffering. And I prayed for him every day until we passed over into the prison of the camp. For we were to fight in the camp show. Then was the birthday of Geta Caesar. This was the son of Severus who was reigning. And I made my prayer for my brother day and night, groaning and weeping that he might be granted to me. Then on the day on which we remained in fetters, this was shown to me. I saw that place which I had formerly observed to be in gloom was now bright. And Dinocritus with a clean body, well clad, was finding refreshment. And where there had been a wound, I saw a scar. And that pool which I had before seen, I saw now with its margin lowered even to the boy's navel. And one drew water from the pool incessantly. And upon its brink was a goblet filled with water. And Dinocritus drew near and began to drink from it. And the goblet did not fail. And when he was satisfied, he went away from the water to play joyously. After the manner of children, and I awoke. Then I understood that he was translated from the place of punishment. Again, after a few days, Pudens, a soldier, an assistant overseer of the prison, who began to regard us in great esteem, perceiving that the great power of God was in us, admitted many brethren to see us, that both we and they might be mutually refreshed. And when the day of the exhibition drew near, my father, worn with suffering, came to me and began to tear out his beard and to throw himself on the earth and to cast himself down on his face and to reproach his ears and to utter such words as might move all creation. I grieved for his unhappy old age. The day before that on which we were to fight, I saw a vision, and here's her third vision. I saw a vision of Pomponius, the deacon, came hither to the gate of the prison and knocked vehemently. I went out to him and opened the gate for him, and he was clothed in a richly ornamented white robe, and he had on a manifold calliculae, Calliculator was the, um, the ornament that would be on the outfit. So little colored bands and so forth okay, that would be worn on a rich garment. And he said to me, Perpetua, we are waiting for you. Come. And he held his hand to me. And we began to go through rough and winding places. And scarcely at length had we arrived breathless at the amphitheater when he led me into the middle of the arena. And he said to me, Do not fear. I am here with you. And I am laboring with you. And he departed. And I gazed upon an immense assembly in astonishment because I knew that I was to be given to the wild beasts. I marveled that the wild beasts were not let loose upon me. Then there came forth against me a certain Egyptian. Now look, she's receiving a vision. So a vision is to be interpreted. Okay? So the Egyptian is a symbol. And we have, we have different people that are symbolized here. So you pay attention. Against me was an Egyptian, horrible in appearance with his backers, to fight me. And there came to me as my helpers and encouragers, handsome youths, and I was stripped, and I became a man. Then my helpers began to rub me with oil, as is the custom of her contest. And I beheld the Egyptian, on the other hand, rolling in the dust. And a certain man came forth of wondrous height, even over to the top of the amphitheater. 
And he wore a loose tunic and a purple robe between two bands over the middle of the breast. And he had, on, he had on the calliculae a varied form made of gold and silver. And he carried a rod as if he were a trainer of gladiators and a green branch upon which were apples of gold. And he called for silence and said, This Egyptian, if he should overcome this woman, shall kill her with a sword. And if, he sh- if she shall overcome him, she shall receive this branch. Then he departed. And we drew near to one another and began to deal out blows. And he sought to lay hold of my feet while I struck his face with my heels. And I was lifted up in the air and began thus to thrust at him as if spurning the earth. But when I saw that there was some delay, I joined my hands so as to twine my fingers with one another. And I took hold upon his head and he fell on his face and I trod upon his head. And the people began to shout and my backers to exult. And I drew near to the trainer and took the branch and he kissed me and said, Daughter, peace be with you. And I began to go gloriously to the Santa Vivarian gate. Then I awoke and perceived that I was not to fight with beasts, but against the devil himself. Still, I knew that the victory was awaiting me. This so far I have completed several days before the exhibition. But what passed at the exhibition itself, let he who will write. Perpetua lays down her pen and is led to her martyrdom. The tradition is that Satyrus, her catechist, first picked up the pen and Tertullian finished the story. We will continue reading. The above was the more eminent vision of the blessed martyr Perpetua, which she herself committed to writing. But God called Secundulus while he was yet in the prison, so he died early. But an earlier exit from the world, not without favor, so as to give a respite to the beasts. Nevertheless, even if his soul did not acknowledge cause for thankfulness, surely his flesh did. But respecting Felicitas... For to her also the Lord's favor approached in the same way when she had gone already eight months with child, for she had been pregnant when she was apprehended. As the day of the exhibition was drawing near, she was in great grief lest an account of her pregnancy she should be delayed, because pregnant women were not allowed to be publicly punished, unless she should shed her sacred and guiltless blood among some who had been wicked subsequently." Moreover, also her fellow martyrs were painfully saddened, lest they should leave so excellent a friend, and as it were a companion, alone in the path of the same hope. Therefore, joining together their united cry, they poured forth their prayer to the Lord three days before the exhibition. Immediately after their prayer, her pains came upon her, and when with the difficulty natural to an eight months' delivery in the labor of bringing forth, she was sorrowing. Some of the one servants of the Kataraktari which are the, of the gladiators, said to her, You who are in such suffering now, what will you do when you are thrown to the beasts, which you despised when you refused to sacrifice? And she replied, Now it is I that suffer what I suffer, but then there will be another in me who will suffer for me, because I also am about to suffer for him. Thus she brought forth a little girl, which a certain sister brought up as her daughter. The day of their victory shone forth, and they proceeded from the prison into the amphitheater, as if to an assembly. 
joyous and of brilliant countenance, if perchance shrinking, it was with joy and not with fear. Perpetua followed with a placid look and with step and gait as a matron of Christ, beloved of God, casting down the luster of her eyes from the gaze of all. Moreover, Felicitas, rejoicing that she had safely brought forth so that she might fight with wild beasts from the blood and from the midwife to the gladiator to wash after childbirth with a second baptism. And when they were brought to the gate and were constrained to put on the clothing, the men, that of the priests of Saturn, and the women, that of those who were consecrated to Ceres, that noble-minded woman resisted even to the end with constancy. So they wanted to clothe them in the robe of the pagans. Okay, For she said, We have come thus far of our own accord for this reason that our liberty might not be restrained. For this reason we have yielded our minds that we might not do any such thing as this. We have agreed on this with you. Injustice acknowledged the justice. The tribune yielded to their being brought as simply as they were. Perpetua sings psalms already treading underfoot the head of the Egyptian. Revocatus and Saturninus and Saturus uttered threatenings against the gazing people about this martyrdom. When they came within the sight of Hilarionus, by gesture and nod, they began to say to him, Thou judgest us, say they, but God will judge thee. At this the people, exasperated, demanded that they should be tormented with the scourges as they passed along the ranks of the venatores, the hunters or gladiators, and they indeed rejoiced that they should have incurred any one of the Lord's passions. For the young women, the devil prepared a very fierce cow, provided especially for that purpose, contrary to custom, rivaling their sex also in that of the beasts. Okay, so they let a cow, a female cow, out who's mad. And so stripped, and I'll make a few comments along the way because it gets a little confusing here of what exactly takes place. And so stripped and clothed with nets, they were led forth. The populace shuddered as they saw one young woman of delicate frame and another with breasts still dropping from her recent childbirth. So being recalled, they were unbound. So they're taken, they're thrown into the nets and dragged out there and the people were horrible. They said, it's too much. Even for them, they took them back and let them loose and then threw them in with this wild, this fierce cow. So they, being recalled, they were unbound. Perpetua was first led in and she was tossed huh, by the cow and she fell on her loins. And when she saw that her tunic was torn from her side, she drew over her as a veil for her middle, rather mindful of her modesty than her suffering. Then she was called for again and she bound up her disheveled hair, for it was not becoming for a martyr to suffer with such disheveled hair, lest she should appear to be mourning in the moment of her glory. So she rose up, and when she saw Felicitas had been crushed, she approached and gave her her hand and lifted her up, and both of them stood together, and the brutality of the populace being appeased, they were recalled to the Santa Vivarian gate. Then Perpetua was received by a certain one who was still a catechumen, Rusticus by name, who kept close to her. And she, as if aroused from sleep, so deeply had she been in the spirit of an ecstasy, began to look around her and to say to amazement of all, I cannot tell, when, when are we to be led out to the cow? 
And when she had heard what had already happened, she did not believe it until she had perceived certain signs of injury to her body and in her dress and had recognized the catechumen. Afterwards, causing that catechumen and her brother to approach, she addressed them saying, Stand fast in the faith and love one another, all of you, and be not offended at my sufferings. And when the populace called for them in the midst, that as the sword penetrated into their body, they might make their eyes partners in the murder, they rose up of their own accord and transferred themselves whither the people wished. But they first kissed one another that they might consummate their martyrdom with the kiss of peace. The rest indeed, immovable and in silence, received the sword's rust. Much more Satrath, who also had first ascended the ladder and first gave up his spirit, for he also was waiting for Perpetua. But Perpetua, that she might taste some pain, being pierced between the ribs, cried out loudly. But she didn't die. And she herself placed, she took the sword, she placed the wavering right hand of the youthful gladiator and the sword to her throat. Possibly such a woman could not have been slain unless she herself had willed it because she was feared by the impure spirit. It is said that the soldier came up and he was so afraid to kill her that he jabbed her, but he didn't get a good strike. And so she took this sword and put it up to her neck and then he thrust it through her neck. O most brave and blessed martyrs, O truly called and chosen unto the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, whom whoever magnifies and honors and adores assuredly ought to read these examples for the edification of the church, not less than the ancient ones, so that new virtues also may testify that one and the same Holy Spirit is always operating even until now. And God the Father omnipotent and His Son Jesus Christ our Lord, who is the glory and infinite power forever and ever. Amen. Perpetua and Felicity were martyred in the city of Carthage on March 7th in the year 202, 100 years after the death of St. John the Beloved. Okay, we will take a break for those that can stay around and have a short something of a Q&A discussion, okay? You may have underlined some things. I'd like to point out some things that are distinctively Catholic and to speak a little bit about those points from an apologetic standpoint. So at least stand up and stretch your legs. We'll take about a three or four or five minute break. The relics in the back we did bring tonight, a relic of St. Agatha and a relic of St. Agnes. Both of the early martyrs we'll be talking about next week. And they're right back there in the back. So you're more than welcome to go and reverence their, their relics. Okay? All right. So how do our, what are we going to do here? If you have some general comments, thoughts, points that you thought were interesting, please make them. But please make them short enough so that, you know, other people can have a chance to say something. Okay? Go ahead, Melanie. Deacon, was it established in the law of the <coughs> pagan Roman Empire that a pregnant woman would not be executed? I believe so, and that's what's indicated in the text. Uh, I think it was a surprise that she was even ar arrested. 
And, uh, but that is a phenomenal part of the story, isn't it? I have a quote from St. Augustine that I might give you a little later on that point. But yes, they were not to be publicly beaten or anything because it was shameful. Okay, and then look, as, as these women were being dragged into the arena, the people were, even though they were in some sense bloodthirsty, they were also had a certain sense of decorum, like that's just too much, right? Another lesson for us. Another lesson for us, yeah. Okay. I noticed that uh, in two out of three of the visions, we have the image of he shall bite at her heel mm. and she shall crush his head. And I wonder if uh, you or anyone else wants to elaborate on Did anyone that. else notice that? Oh, yeah. yeah, Genesis 3.15, right? I'll read you a little quote from St. Augustine on that. The dragon, therefore, was trodden down by the chaste foot and victorious tread of the blessed Perpetua, when that upward ladder was shown her whereby she should go to God, and the head of the ancient serpent, which to her that fell, who's her that fell? Eve, to her that fell was a stone of stumbling, was made a step <laughs> under her that rose. And so Perpetua, like the mother of God, becomes a new Eve. Right? She's a mother of the church. I didn't say anything before, but it is something to remember. We have not only fathers of the church, but great mothers. Mother Teresa, she's a mother of the church. And here we have mothers of the church, and their witness gives life. And many are born of their witness and their example. Okay? Father Deacon, thank you. What also of sticking with the same book of the Bible in Genesis chapter 28, the latter in the vision of St. Perpetua compared to the vision of Jacob in chapter 28? Yeah, the latter is oftentimes used in the spiritual life in fact, our Lord says to Nathaniel, you will see angels ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. So that vision of the ladder going up to paradise. It's a beautiful vision. And uh, it's used by other saints too, also. And, then, and what I liked about that was when she reached the top. You know, she treads upon the dragon, right? She conquers the devil. She ascends. And then she enters into that community of martyrs. And there it is that Christ is... Uh, milking the sheep, right? Who are the sheep? Who are the sheep of Christ? Yeah. The martyrs and the sheep are one and the same. Okay? And he's taking from them the gift of their own life. They're the martyrs, aren't they? Okay? At the same time, and you guys can think about this on your own, Perpetua is nursing her own child. And here Christ nurses the sheep. The sheep give their life to Christ. And it is that life which he receives, which of course was his to begin with, wasn't it? They give it back to Christ. And what does Christ do with that life? He gives it back to, to us and feeds us that life in the Holy Eucharist. The Eucharist is Thanksgiving, huh? It's the Thanksgiving of praise. And so we have this beautiful vision there of Christ receiving the gift which he's already given to us. And we have that in the canon also. And it's that relationship then back and forth with God. We enter in and the two become one flesh. Okay. 
Karen from Fairfax is wondering, could you explain the pinching of the incense to the emperor? Well, Aaron from Fairfax, we're in Fairfax. Get in your car and drive down here. Karen. The food's a lot better here than it is on your computer. The pinching of incense? What did, what did that mean? Is it for the gods? Or yeah, well, because Caesar, because they're talking about megalomaniacs, huh? and, and Nero and others had gotten to the point of proclaiming themselves deity. And so, to prove your obedience, you would offer a piece of incense and throw it upon the charcoal, and as the smoke rose, you declared your obedience and your worship of Caesar. Of course, for the Christians, they could not do that. And that's why in the story of Polycarp, he said, for the sake of your age, take one kernel, throw it on the fire, and walk away. He said, never. I can't. And Perpetua does the same thing. It's a great witness. Can I just say, because you raised the Eucharist, and that was mm-hmm. really interesting. I read this as a Protestant in college, and I never saw that. And I also did not, that whole thing about her brother and the prayers, and basically like he's in purgatory, and she prays, and then he goes to paradise. Like That just completely went over my head until reading it this time. It was pretty phenomenal. Yeah, does anyone, did anyone catch that, the intercessory prayer aspect? That's one of those points is prayer for the dead. The Catholic and Orthodox do that. Others don't. And if you're going to say that the church invented that, you're going to have to come back to a text like this and recognize, written in 2020203, and not a single person says that it's heresy. Not one person denies its authenticity or its orthodoxy. So you have to claim that the church had become 100% totally corrupted by the year 202. And there's very few Protestants who are going to feel very comfortable saying that. Very few. Okay? And it's not Deacon Sabatino up here, you know, whooping up scriptures verse by verse. It's, there it is. And you know, it's not only perpetual and felicity. We already talked, and I would recommend this week for those that are here, but also those watching or those that might be listening to this later on after this talk is given, to go back and listen to our program on Polycarp and Ignatius, especially the Q&A during the talk on St. Ignatius, where we talk about the same point. Because, my dear friends, if you don't have anything left to protest, stop protesting. And I'm serious about that. The unity of the body of Christ is of fundamental importance, and we shouldn't play games with the unity of the church. Don't play games with it. Come back to the union of the one church of Jesus Christ and stop your protesting. And I love you, by the way. I do. But I love the church, and I love Jesus Christ, and he prayed, let us be one. Because God is one. And when we play games with that, we're playing games with our salvation. As fascinating as the history and apologetics of this is, the thing that jumped out at me the most was right at the beginning when she says, neither can I call myself anything else than what I am, a Christian. Which just speaks so firmly to the idea that being a Christian is not a club to which you give your membership, mm. but rather the fabric of your being. So that was in my head as we approached mm. this whole thing, and I saw it played out in her relationships with her family, which, mm. you know, as a mother myself is 
clearly how this speaks to me um, at first, but looking at her father and her relationship with her father and with her son and how she has to abandon both of them, feeling their loss profoundly, mm-hmm. and yet still letting go of it because the very fabric of her being belongs to someone else. And I think being o- a Christian and only the ladies here can understand how that what that is like to to be able to walk away from your child nursing at the breast. I mean, unbelievable. How how many times a day is the church attacked for being against women? Well, here it is, right? There's nothing anti-woman about this. The only point you might bring up, and I'll bring it up to see what your thoughts are, is when she goes to battle, remember, against the Egyptian who is what? He's Satan, right? He said later, she says, and I tread on the head of the Egyptian. She also tread on the head of the dragon, right? So these images are crossing. But remember, she faces him and it says, I became a man. It's a strange image. What do you think is meant by that? Wait till she comes. It's a matter of militancy, I would say, Father, that's normally not associated with the feminine. You guys agree, disagree? The strength, exactly. And again, this is not a misogynist point at all. She is strengthened, but who is she strengthened by? She's strengthened by Christ. And she, at that moment, transformed by Christ to battle Satan. She becomes Christ's hands and feet, if you will, right? To tread upon the devil. It's a beautiful, and then she's oiled it up, right? That's an image going back to baptism. We're going back earlier before baptism because it was the practice to put oil, olive oil, to strengthen the person for battle. So why a child is also anointed before baptism? That goes back to the earliest days of the church because the child is entering into battle, the battle of baptism to crush the power of the enemy. And then, remember, it has an image of that huge guy, right, who is Jesus, right? He says, peace be with you, daughter. And he has that branch with fruit hanging off of it. And that's her victory because she's given the fruit of paradise back. Okay? Got a little confused there because one second later we have Jesus, as it turns out, saying, the woman, if she could overcome, but she just became a man. Yeah, I think... What's up with that? Yeah, because the image... Yeah, because she doesn't, she remains, that's a beautiful aspect of our salvation. Christ gives us his life, but he does not destroy our nature, does he? The image is kind of giving us insight beyond the Egyptian, beyond the dragon, right? Beyond perpetua to Christ. And so she remains who she is, but totally transformed into the power of Christ. Who can battle Satan, but only God, right? And who treads upon the devil? It's God who crushes him. Could you explain the significance of the last sentence of the second to last paragraph? Possibly such a woman could not have been slain unless she herself had willed it. Look with me at the second to last sentence before the prayer. It says there, and she herself placed the wavering right hand of the youthful gladiator to her throat. Had it not been her will, it's like Christ. Christ willed his death in the sense that he fully allowed it to take place. And had she not allowed it, the writer, Tertullian, is saying, I doubt they could have killed her, right? Had she not allowed it. It's very similar to, well, Cecilia, who I hope we have time to get into next week. Cecilia's boiled alive, like John had been boiled, but she's boiled alive in water, 
okay? And let, she just, they boil, they stoke the fire, and they boil and boil and boil her, and she just sits there and sings. Didn't affect her. So then the eparch says, put the sword to her, and he takes the sword, and he whacks her over the neck, whacks her again, and whacks her a third time with this, I mean, not little knife, a sword, a big Roman sword, and leaves her for dead. So the saints, this, the members of the church come to pick up her body after they abandon her, and she's still alive. Three days later, she gives up her spirit. In those right words, she gives up her spirit. And so I think that the writer, Tertullian, is just saying, I doubt they could have killed her. She was so unified with Christ, so holy. I just think Tertullian is just looking at her saying, she could have walked away. God would have protected her. And he said, I doubt they could have killed her. That's all. He's just observing. That's all. Okay. And let me just bring up a couple more points. I know we're running out of time, and maybe there's one or two other points that you guys want to make, and that's fine, but I don't want to miss these. The communion scene, which I already brought up, you remember she was just baptized, or they were just baptized, and then she receives this vision. She's taken up into paradise. And then Christ feeds her with this cheese or, or lebne or milk, right? a kind of curdled milk probably, right? And she says she crossed her hands and she received, and it was sweet to her. It was common in the early church that on the day of your baptism, the newly baptized, the newly illumined would be brought to Holy Communion for the first time. They would receive, some accounts say, of, of the precious blood first, and then drink some sweetened milk, and then receive of the body of Christ, to remind them of the sweetness of Christ who they are receiving. Okay, to us, uh, you think, oh my gosh, they just broke the fast or something. <laughs> they were being reminded of the gift of paradise, which was now given back to them, which flowed with milk and honey. Tertullian says that it is an early practice of North Africa. I have the quote here. It's too good. I can't miss it. Ah, there it is. You guys want to hear, right? Tertullian, who cares about what Dean Sabatino has to say? Okay, he says, To deal with this matter briefly, I shall begin with baptism. When we are going to enter the water, but a little before, in the presence of the congregation under the hand of the president, we solemnly profess that we disavow the devil and his pomp and his angels. Hereupon, we are thrice immersed, making a somewhat ampler pledge than the Lord had appointed in the gospel. Then when we are taken as newborn children, we taste first of all of a mixture of milk and honey. And from that day, we refrain from the daily bath for a whole week. We take also in the congregation before daybreak. And he goes on to talk about their practices. My point is that this, the text is using what was going on already at the time in North Africa. She has this vision. She's baptized, but she's in prison. Right? No milk and honey. So God says, Jesus says, come on up and receive communion. She receives her first communion from the hand of Christ himself. And notice she wakes up from her vision and she says, I still tasted the sweetness. So far being a vision of She's in ecstasy and something's going on. It's just a dream. No, when the saints enter into ecstasy, they are transported and truly made present to Christ. She received communion from Christ in paradise and then is allowed to remain here to undergo her martyrdom. It's just a beautiful scene that you can get that 
that all the way back to the early church, that practice of the early church, and then we can hear it here in the text. What? Why is the devil Egyptian? Oh! <laughs> Why? Hmm? Yeah. Who's the devil to the Israelites and to the people of God? Yeah, well, the Egyptians are good. You're going to choose a people that have been an adversary to the people of God. Yeah, be the Egyptians, right? And the Israelites are taken out of Egypt, not so much to free them from slavery or bodily slavery, but to free them from slavery to paganism. And so the, this Egyptian man is a symbol of the devil who holds them bound. Okay? Okay? What's our plan for next week? I got my work cut out for me. Five saints. I'm not going to give as big of an introduction next time. Maybe just a couple of minute introduction to each of the saints so that we can get through their story. Then we will have Cecilia's Acts translated from a Greek manuscript from the 9th century, which we were able to get then into English and, and to us. But if I can get it from the Latin, I'd like to do that. So, does that sound okay to you guys? Thank you very, very much for your attention. I hope you appreciated the evening. God bless you. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.